This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello, and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. Today's episode features an interview with Benton Crane, CEO of Harmon Brothers. On this episode, Benton shares his journey from a self-described data geek working at the U.S. Census Bureau to creating some of the most successful viral video advertising of all time. He explains the formula they use to craft narratives at Harmon Brothers, how they use data and analytics in conjunction with great storytelling, and what many marketers get wrong about A-B testing. Enjoy. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast, or click on the link in our show notes. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And in sunny San Francisco, Lauren Vaccarello, what's going on? Not much. Hey, and how, uh, how's your day going? It's pretty good because we have Benton Crane on the other line. Benton, what's going on? I'm so excited hey for this one. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, we are really excited to have you because we're going to talk about some stuff today that's near and dear to our heart here at Mission and Marketing Trends. And we'll also, nerd out on some of your content. Yeah, and we nerd out on some of your content. But also, we're going to talk about the V word today viral marketing, which is something that everybody strives to get, but so few of us really get there. And you've seen the promised land. So you started your career in marketing at one of the most influential marketing organizations, the U.S. Census. How did that happen? <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, I kind of went from being a data geek who had my nose in spreadsheets all day, every day, to joining up with my partners, the the Harmon brothers, the ones who actually have the last name Harmon. And together we did the Poopery campaign back in 2013. And that kind of started the snowball that rolled and rolled to, you know, until today where we have, you know, several of the most high profile and most famous ad campaigns on the internet. So my route went you know, took me through Washington, D.C., working at the U.S. Census Bureau as a statistician. And then eventually I worked in the Intel community, kind of at various, you know, three-letter agencies out there in the Washington, D.C. area. And then I left all of that to sell poop spray with the, with the Harmon brothers, and the rest is history. And here I am. Yeah, what was that decision like? I mean, what, what was it like going from, you know, working in the federal government, which I have as well, so I, I know the uh, I know the experience of of going from uh, working with the government, which is notoriously an extremely creative and uh, and welcoming place. You're so kind. Yeah, to something that's so creative and something that you just had never done before. Yeah, it's it, it's very true. I mean, working in the federal bureaucracy in many ways can be a little bit soul sucking. And in that it's lots of red tape, lots of levels of, of bureaucracy, and it's really hard to, to find ways to be super innovative and push the envelope and, and be really, really creative. And as I was kind of living in that world, I was 
staying in, in pretty close contact with, with Jeff Harmon. You know, we were college roommates, uh, longtime friends. We're actually cousins. We, we've grown up together. And, and so he and I were in close contact. And one day on a phone call, he told me about this, uh, this crazy product called Poopery. And, and he said, hey, I'm, I'm looking into this. They want me to do a campaign for it. I've tried it out. It really works. I'm really considering this. And so I got asking more questions. And as I was hearing him talk about this product, it just, the light went on inside my head. And I realized that I had a, an opportunity to, to join forces with, with Jeff and, and eventually a couple of the other brothers as well. And I was looking for a change. I, I wanted, I wanted to do something fun and fast paced and creative. And, and, and so I told Jeff that, that I'd be happy to join him. Um, and they needed a, an analytics person to run all of the, the ad buying, the optimization, A-B testing, all of that type of stuff. And, and he was a little bit surprised to hear that I would be willing to move my family across the country to sell poop spray, but I was, and, and it turned out to be the best decision I've ever made in my life. When duty calls, as they say. <laughs> oh, touche, touche. Well played. <laughs> I, what I love about this and your, your background is I feel like marketers in so many ways get bucketed into, are you the analytical person? Are you the creative person? And just going from the U.S. census, working with the government, and then working at arguably one of the most creative um, agencies out there that's creating you know, the viral videos that are happening right now, it's just such kind of a, an exciting transition and sort of general career progression and also the, the foresight to say, you know what, I really buy into this and I really believe in this and I'm going to pick up and move everybody because we're on to something. Yeah, well, what a lot of people don't realize just looking at Harmon Brothers from the outside in, you know, people see, oh, you know, it's one creative hit after the next. They just keep doing it over and over and over again. But what they don't realize is that half of our team is focused on the data and the analytics and understanding the, understanding the market. And, and that's part of, that's a huge part of our success and our ability to learn and adapt and, and keep changing as the marketplace changes. In fact, we have, a, we have what we call our hypothesis lab, hypo lab for short, and that's where we meet every week as a team to go over all of the different hypotheses that we're testing at any given time so that we can identify what's working, what's not, new trends, all of that type of stuff. And then as these hypotheses, as we get results back from these tests, we feed those results directly to the creative team so that they can incorporate all those learnings into their latest projects. It's pretty key to who we are. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting things about what you've built is that growth engine, because it's one of the things we talk about all the time here at Mission, because there's a lot of podcasts out there, not nearly as many as people would think, but there are a lot of podcasts and a lot of, you know, there's a quote unquote fight for, for earballs, but ultimately putting out the content is the very tip of the iceberg and the rest of it is the growth engine behind it. And I think that, especially with ad agencies and this kind of, you know, I, I would say that you're, I mean, I, I won't even say what 
what what you all describe yourself as, which I think is so fascinating, is the combination of the traditional branding and a traditional infomercial. The the Harmon Brothers video, which has a bunch of unique kind of qualities of that. One of those is the character-driven marketing. It is hero's journey. It is telling a story and it is that humor element, which I think a lot of marketers kind of miss that the point is to be remarkable. The point is for people to share with their friends, for people to have it be memorable and, and interesting and a discussion point. How do you kind of craft this idea? How do you craft these things that have gotten 150 million views for the Squatty Potty video, you know, 150 million views for the Purple Mattress video, and a bunch of other videos that have all passed the over 5 to 10 to 30 million view mark and millions of shares, which I think is is equally impressive. Yeah, it it's interesting because historically, people rarely ever mixed the worlds of traditional branding and infomercials, right? You either live in this world with Nike and Apple and Coca-Cola, or you're on the far opposite end of the spectrum, you know, trying to hawk products like uh, Snuggie or, or, or Slapchop or whatever. And, and those two worlds, historically, they kind of hate each other, to be honest with you. If you hear infomercial people talk about traditional branding, you know, the criticism is always going to be, oh, they can't track any of that. It's so expensive. It's, you know, you, you spend money now and who knows if you're going to get an ROI on it. And, and then, of course, the traditional branders will criticize, you know, the infomercial world of, ew, gross, you know, that's just, that's, that's nasty. I would never do that to my brand. And, and so this concept of taking the best of both of those worlds, where, it, you know, in the case of an infomercial, it's this concept that I can do a direct sell and, and get a direct ROI on the ad dollars that I'm spending, but I can also build my brand at the same time. I can... I can use character and story and, um, and I can create a, a world where, where that character lives and I can build trust with my, with my customers through that, through that character. And over time, I can build a very recognizable brand like Squatty Potty, Purple, Chatbooks, you know, many of the others. So it, I think, like you mentioned, one of the keys there is that character having having their own backstory, right? Stories are what stick out in our memories. I think that's why, you know, a Nike will, will sign LeBron James to a deal so that they can get LeBron James's backstory connected to their, their brand. 100%. Using, you know, some generic model in their ads or something who has no backstory. Yeah, really quick. That's a key differentiator. And I think people miss that is that you are purchasing with the athlete, the story of, the kid who grew up in Akron with nothing that became exceptional, which is what they want. They want like superheroes, right? That's what like Nike wants. So the ads that they're telling have the story with them. They have all of the, I'll use baggage in a, in a good way of that person's like real struggle to become a superhero. That's exactly right. And if you want to be like that person, then you can wear Nike like they do. Like if you, that's as close as you can get to being like that person is going out and, you know, shooting a thousand jumpers every day and, you know, wearing their shoes. And that's, it's super critical to, to the storytelling about having that, having that person be there. So I think the way to really hit that point home is to think about 
you know, kind of the opposite scenario. Imagine you open up a magazine and you turn to a Nike ad that has like this beautiful scenery. You know, it's this mountain lake and there, there's a trail next to the lake and there's a runner running on the trail and that runner's wearing Nike shoes and, and there's a tagline that says, you know, just do it with the Nike logo there. You can take that ad and if you were to swap out the tagline and the logo and the shoes with say Under Armour or Reebok or Adidas or whoever, the ad still works for the competitor, right? Because that ad is, is generic. And, and let's be honest, Nike can get away with some generic advertising because they're Nike and, and they're so you know, ever present. But the rest of us, we can't afford to be generic like that. And so you know, the opposite example, like we talked about with LeBron, you put a LeBron ad side by side with a Steph Curry ad, uh, you know, who is with Under Armour, you could never swap the Under Armour and the Nike logos one for the other and still have the ad work. It just would no longer work. And that's because you have that, that character, that backstory, that, that connection that you can never be separated from, from your brand. And so that's what we're trying to harness in the type of advertising we do is we're building a character like that that connects with you like a LeBron James or a Steph Curry by giving you backstory, by giving you wants, wishes, hopes, dreams that you can connect with. And I think the critical part that you've talked about and written about is that the main character is not the product. The main character of the story is the consumer, is the customer. And in this hero's journey, the brand is Obi-Wan, not Luke Skywalker. The brand is Yoda. The brand is the advisor or the helper or the thing that aids the main character of the story. But your customer is the hero. Yeah, that's exactly right. In fact, Donald Miller wrote a whole book on this subject, How to Build a Story Brand, which I highly recommend. It's phenomenal. But in a nutshell, exactly what you're saying, so oftentimes as marketers, we fall into this trap of believing that the character we're creating in our advertising is the hero of the story. We're trying to position that character as the hero who has these wants and wishes and faces these uh, problems and, and they come out the other side triumphant in, in their journey. But that simply isn't the case in advertising. If you're doing it right, that your brand character is only a guide on that hero's journey. So like you said, it, it's, it's Obi-Wan to Luke. In this case, Luke is your customer. Your customer is on their own journey and they want to be their own hero And it's your job to show them how to be their own hero and how to give them the tools to be their own hero. And usually the tools that you give them are your product, your service, whatever it is you're, you're selling so that they can guide them or not guide themselves, but so that they can achieve their own success in their own journey. And if I'm, I'm trying to build a, a character driven marketing campaign and I'm looking at the, hero's journey and definitely sort of following a lot of what you're saying where do you think where do you think I as a marketing leader should jump in and start to try to figure out not just the that the customer is my hero but how do I how do I really build something that's going to stick and resonate with them 
I think the key is to really put yourself in your customer's shoes. So you start by understanding who is my customer? What is the core problem that my customer is facing? And if I can help my customer overcome that core problem, what does success look like for my customer? What does, what does failure look like for my customer? How does success feel for my customer? How does failure feel for my customer? And, and once you really put yourself in those shoes and understand, and I'm going to take it deeper than it's not just understanding what your customer's facing, it's actually empathizing with, with, what, you're, with what your customer is facing. And once you can empathize with, with them at that level, then it's easy for you to say, oh, well, to guide them through to success, here's the tool that they need, and here is the guidance that they need to use that tool. And, and then it's easy to, you know, to position your brand and your brand character to be that guide and to provide that tool. Absolutely. And I mean, I love this customer first and customer centric approach of who are you trying to sell to and having this deep degree of empathy. And it's something we've heard um, guests talk about it in other podcasts, but I, I don't think it can be sort of pushed and reiterated enough of deeply understanding who your customer is, what their problems are, what they care about, what their needs are, and really getting in into their heads and their hearts and using that as your, your starting ground and using that as your, you know, jumping off point before you just go in and start telling them, you know, why, why our company is awesome. That's right. Walk us through, I mean, you don't need to share any of the, uh, wait, what's the lab called? The hypo lab? Yeah, the uh, hypo you, lab. you don't need to give any hypo lab secrets here. Like walk me through some of these famous campaigns and how you thought about it. I mean, obviously, you know, you start with the, the customer. I, and the reason why I say this is I think people a lot of times say, how do we build a viral marketing campaign, <laughs> which I think is the wrong way to think about it. I think that, you know, Seth Godin always talks about like, you need to be, if you're writing a book, if you're creating a piece of content, if you're creating a video, if you're creating anything, you're making it for a very specific audience of people, not for everyone. So if you want to make an audio, uh, a video that gets a hundred million views, that means you need to take an approach to something that 100 million people want to listen to, that's not realistic, nor is it probably your target demo. Even even if it is, it's probably just too big of a slice to try to carve out. So how do you how do you build these type of campaigns working like backwards, forwards? So we always say, make it so good that it doesn't have to be viral. And what we mean by that well, like, like I mentioned at the beginning, there's this world where marketers are faced to choose between traditional branding or infomercials. And usually that trade-off looks like, looks something like this. Okay. Nasty infomercial. That's going to look ugly for my brand or crazy expensive traditional branding when I can't afford to compete with Apple and Nike and facing those hard decisions. So many people are like, Oh, maybe viral is the answer. Hey, can, <laughs> yeah. can you give us a viral video? And so, you know, we, we kind of find ourselves constantly telling people, well, hold on, hold on, you know, let's step back and look at this. At its very core, virality is actually not even predictable at all. You know, there is no recipe that says, hey, if you do A, B, C, and D, you're going to go viral. 
it, it simply isn't the case. If it were, everyone would do it, right? But by nature, virality, it has some randomness to it that you just can't predict. And when it happens, the, that's fantastic. But if you don't plan on virality, if you build it so it doesn't need to be vi viral, that's going to be your best chance of success. So just as an example, let's, let's use Squatty Potty as an example. So Squatty Potty was one of our ads that did go truly viral. We were lucky enough that, you know, the stars aligned and we hit genuine and true virality. I think if we had just left it at that, you know, basically just let it have its viral run in the sun, which, you know, probably would have lasted a week or two or so, we probably would have hit 10, 15, maybe 20 million views on that campaign, maybe 20 million. Now, I think if you combine all of the different platforms and all the different variations of that video, I think we're over 300 million views. And it's because we had a very well thought out distribution strategy that went behind it. We had influencer collaborations that, that, that went behind it. And, and essentially, we had an economic engine behind it that allowed that media buying strategy to continue for months and months and even years as opposed to just kind of this quick viral flash in the pan. You know, I think so many people are shifting their way of thinking with content so that you have a really deliberate buying strategy. And the buying strategy, oftentimes, the best ones aren't just trying to, you know, game the algorithms all the time. There's things that people are doing that are cutting edge, stuff that we're working on here, where you're talking about quizzes and you're talking about bots and chatbots and all sorts of different things. Like, are you looking, what types of mechanisms and partnerships and stuff like that, what kind of mechanisms are you looking at to drive that, the growth, once you get something out there that's working well? That's a great question. Generally, we look at it on a spectrum, where on one end of the spectrum, you have companies who you know, their very survival depends on kind of near-term immediate profitability, right? And so they need to get the biggest bang for their buck on every dollar spent. And, and so generally for a company like that, we have to focus on the highest ROI channels like, like search ads. And we can usually get really good performance out of Facebook ads, oftentimes uh, YouTube pre-roll ads. But there's this, you know, that's one end of the spectrum. And the opposite end of the spectrum has, has companies that are looking to turn themselves into a household brand where everyone knows and recognizes their name. And they understand that that's, that's an investment that they have to make into their future. And so they're not necessarily looking to get an immediate ROI on every dollar spent. And so they can take a much broader multi-channel approach where they're not just looking at Facebook and YouTube and, and search ads, but they're branching out into even into TV and radio and programmatic. And, you know, you can even play in some of the more obscure platforms. You can do over the top platforms, you know, Hulu and various different streaming apps, you know, ESPN and, and stuff like that. So you have this broad spectrum where, where you have companies at each end of that spectrum and then everything in between where you're, where you're doing kind of a blended approach. And what we're constantly trying to help our, our clients 
understand and achieve is that they should look at that spectrum as a journey where if you just start on one end of the spectrum and stay there, you're going to stunt the growth of your company. But if you start on that end of the spectrum, get economic health for your company and then start progressing across that spectrum, that's how you build a long-term, long-lasting brand that, that seizes significant market share and has long-term success, right? Well, I think that's such a sort of beautifully articulate approach and description of this. I had a conversation recently with someone about, you know, in general, oddly enough, about marketing and was talking about the long-term growth of the brand and the short-term performance as two completely independent things. And they, you know, were having this conversation about what do we want to do for driving performance? We're not really looking for, for brand piece. And so much to your description, if you don't start planning, what are we going to do for the long term? And how do you really integrate? This is what you're going to do to drive ROI today. And that sort of immediate, we have to obviously keep the business running. But how do you also set up to, you know, keep the eye on the prize? Because if you're not building your brand long term, all of the, the short term successes are eventually going to reach a ceiling. That's exactly right. And in fact, we've seen several instances where companies are unable to make that jump, where they have a great campaign and they're getting a great ROI on that campaign. And it's so exciting and so profitable and so oftentimes they feel like, hey, we've made it, you know, we're, we're, we're done. But they forget that they need to be turning their focus and their gaze toward the future. And because they don't take that foundation and build for the future, then they end up having a pretty limited run in the sun. And they don't end up with the long term success that they actually hoped for all along. No, absolutely. And when you're thinking about things like performance. And I, I will always say, you know, I'm a, I'm a performance marketer at heart, but the thing that people tend to hear is, well, performance means that, you know, short term, this is the great campaign that did well, but it's, you know, it's the immediate. And when I think about performance, it's yes, this is the, the immediate, how do you drive, you know, dollars today? But if you're thinking about performance marketing, you also need to be thinking about how do we make sure we're building the brand, we're growing the category so we can really capture that, that long-term revenue and sustainable growth versus a sort of quick hit that just happens today with that one quick pop. I don't know if you've ever heard about the, the Hollywood workout, but it, this reminds me of the Hollywood workout where you have, I think it's like 80% of the muscles that you see these Hollywood actors and actresses um, that look that get super shredded in like four months or whatever it is, that they're all the visible muscles. It's like basically you hit twice a day. It's like buys, tries, chest, lats, traps, and like that's it. And if basically you can get ridiculously huge in that amount of time and it looks great for a movie that, you know, for a two hour movie where you needed to get you know, super jacked and have abs or, you know, whatever it is. But that's a horrible thing for your body long-term because you're not developing your core and your back and your legs um, and all of the muscles that the actual 80% of the muscles that you're not working out because it, it's basically like, you know, 80% of what you see is, is only 20% of the muscles in your body. My numbers could be off a little bit, but, but the idea is like, 
you're doing something that seems productive in the short term and is productive in the short term because you're going to get you're going to see really good results from it but at the end of the day you're not building for the long term and i think a lot of time marketers need to be able to to do both right you need to be able to you know see noticeable difference in 6 weeks so that you know your uh, significant others like hey you've been working out it's like yeah but at the same time you're you know you're hitting the uh, the lower back and the row machine or you know doing your squats or whatever it is yeah that that's a great analogy i feel like the one thing that it, you know as marketers are trying to to change their perspective and look more towards the future i feel like the one thing that they could do that would make a massive difference for them is to stop A-B testing across channels and only A-B test within channels. And what I mean by that is so oftentimes we look at our Facebook ad performance and then we compare that to our Google search performance and then we compare that to our YouTube performance. And we look at all those channels and we say, oh, Google search is performing the best, so that's where all of our budget is going to go, which we know that's a really short-term decision, right? That, that, that That's not a smart long-term strategy. And so if, if marketers would just stop that mentality and just recognize that I only A-B test within the channel, Facebook to Facebook or Google to Google, YouTube to YouTube, and then I recognize that each channel needs its own focus and its own, um, its own strategy and its own budget, and all of those channels are important because you know, they jointly lift each other and, and it takes a multi-channel approach to have a long-term success. Yeah, it's a, it's a brilliant insight. And I think a lot of people are doing exactly that and running experiments that are apples to oranges. And it's too hard to figure out other than just, you know, dollar spend how to do those. And I think you look at something like Google Ads, for example, which is inherently not visual and not story driven. It's, you know, essentially gets way closer to point of sale driven. And then you kind of lose the storytelling aspect. And one of the things that you've done so well is the storytelling aspect and particularly around humor. I think it's one of the biggest problems that, you know, marketing leaders, especially the ones that we work with, and especially B2B ones, many of which listen to this podcast, that struggle with the humor thing, you know, and there are some campaigns out there that are some real stinkers, you know, pardon the pun here. But I think ultimately, you know, there's listeners that are like, yeah, well, at the end of the day, you know, with with poopery and squatty potty and some of this stuff, like poop is pretty funny. And it's something that we all do and we can laugh at, but like that ain't working for a data visualization tool or that ain't working for this SaaS product. What kind of ways do you look at integrating humor into these campaigns and how could there be some some insights for our friends in the B2B world? So first off, humor isn't necessarily part of the recipe, meaning it doesn't have to be humorous. In fact, we have um, a really successful campaign that doesn't touch on humor at all that we did for a not-for-profit called Save the Storks. There's no humor in that one at all, but it still has millions and millions of views and has raised millions of dollars for the organization. But the reason we tend to use humor so often is because humor is simply the most shareable content on the internet. You know, you can also achieve some shareability with 
with inspirational, feel-good material. You can achieve some some shareability sometimes with conflict-based stuff where people are are feeling passionate about it and choosing a side. You know, you see that in politics all of the time. We haven't taken a, that approach with, with any of ours, but humor just happens to be the most shareable content on the internet. And so when you make something that's shareable, then you're going to get, you know, probably 10 to 20% better performance out of your campaign simply because of all the free sharing that happens along with it. And so, you know, take a brand like Chatbooks, where when, you know, when we first joined forces at the time, they were a very um, sentimental brand. You know, their mission was uh, helping families hold on to what matters. And they were all about memories and, and sentiment and, and feel good. And, and of course, the first thing they told us is we don't want a pooping unicorn. You know, don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. don't do to us what you did to Squatty Potty. And so we said, no problem, you know, we, we can explore humor if it works, or we can, you know, we can completely eliminate the humor. And it just so happened that, you know, we got into the writing retreat and our writers came with several humorous scripts. And we ultimately chose to really lean into the humor, but do it in a very tasteful, relatable way for, you know, particularly for moms. And and it just resonated so deeply. And, and frankly, it kind of helped their brand evolve into now they've had several competitors come to them and say, it's so amazing that you guys have figured out how to bring humor into this world and how to not take life so seriously. And their brand is now kind of like leading the market in, in a way that none of their competitors are able to. It's pretty neat. All right, let's get into the lightning round. want to know a little bit more about what makes you tick here. The lightning round is presented by our friends at Pardot. The lightning round is quick and easy, fast and easy questions, just like B2B marketing with Pardot. Let's get into it. Number one, what app are you using on your phone that is the most fun? <laughs> chess. <laughs> it's, it's very timely because we just talked a bunch about chess on a recent episode. So, uh, um, that is and, definitely you, I'm not good at chess. I'm a terrible chess player, but I have fun with it. What about your favorite vacation spot? Uh, Moab, Utah. Yeah. All right. Shout out to Ben with all the, the Utah stuff. He was so excited. Producer Ben was so excited that uh, to have a, a fellow Utah lover. Nice. Nice. High, high five to producer Ben. Other than the ones that you all have done, what ad campaign have you seen recently that you're most envious of? Man, I, I, one's popping into my head, but it's not a recent one. It's a, I think it's two or three years old now. Oh, that's fine. Yeah. So when Dodge uh, released the new version of their Dodge Dart, which ironically is just kind of like a, an economy uh, you know, entry-level car, but they made this ad campaign for the Super Bowl for the Dodge Dart. And it just has amazing rhythm. It's set to a beat and it has this amazing rhythm. And then the comedic timing in it is just fantastic. And it's actually a 90 second ad, but you watch it and it feels more like a 30 or a 40 second ad because the rhythm is so good and it sucks you in so well. That's an ad that I, I adore. I think they did fantastic on that. What are you most excited about for the future of marketing? I am so excited to get to pioneer and shape 
how the worlds of entertainment and advertising melt together. Said a, a different way, if you think about how all of our eyeballs are shifting to Netflix and Amazon and these platforms where there are no commercial breaks, that is creating a world where you know, the Nikes and Apples and Coca-Colas of the world who used to be able to access our attention via commercial breaks are no longer able to reach us there. And so now they're having to explore other ways. You know, right now the, the product placement industry is just booming because all of these companies are, you know, paying to have their products placed inside of, you know, inside of Netflix shows, movies, and, and everything else. And my personal belief is that it's actually creating a huge opportunity for the worlds of advertising and entertainment to melt together. I feel like our advertising already took a step in that direction by creating ads that people actually want to view and, and they want to engage with. And I'm excited to see how we can take that even a step further, you know, to build content that its number one purpose is entertainment and engagement but yet it integrates brand partnerships in creative new ways that, that customers are actually excited about and viewers are excited about. That's a fun exploration in my opinion. I couldn't agree more. I, I am double tap that with just how exciting the industry is going to become. I was listening to, or no, I was watching um, the new rest of development season. And I think like every episode they call an Uber. It's pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, that's a great example. One thing I think about, you know, the brand Dos Equis had the most interesting man in the world. And of course, I don't know what all went down, but he's no longer the most interesting man in the world. And they replaced him with, you know, someone who... Less interesting. You can't have a... We talk, we talk about this ad campaign all the time because it's like one of the most popular ever. You can't have the most interesting man in the world and then change it to someone else because then inherently they are less interesting than the most interesting man. That's right. It didn't work. But as I kind of like explore this new world of entertainment melting together with, with advertising, one of the thought exercises I, I like to do is to kind of imagine what would a TV series of the most interesting man in the world have been like? And, and I think that that's such a fun, such a fun exploration. And, and we're excited to see, you know, to see how we can explore that and to see, you know, what, what brands can properly melt in with the world of entertainment. I would go a step further with that. I would say that if you're not creating an ad that you could then turn into a series, it's probably not worth doing because this would be my, my, this is my like, you know, stronger call to action on creating amazing stuff for the marketers out there is that if you're not thinking of a way to create something that is audacious and repeatable and serialized in some way, then it's not really going to be remarkable enough to begin with. And I think that that pushing the envelope on, if I were to make this, if this is my two minute pilot for a TV series, then you're on the right track. Yeah. I, I like that thinking. Our chat books ad in particular had literally thousands and thousands of comments of people saying, I would watch this. I would watch this family on TV or this would make an amazing sitcom, or this needs to be a show, you know, comments like that. And, and so it's fun to, to get to explore the world of where do we go next with that. And what a brilliant way to, to do pilots, right? 
if someone is willing to, I mean, where's the brand? Shout out to all of our, our brand marketers out there that are listening. Like go fund that show. If that many people, if thousands of people are saying that they would watch this show, like let's make it a show, right? Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And, and I love that stuff too. We We may or may not be working on that. There we go. <laughs> okay, last question for lightning round. What's the worst advice you've ever received? So two or three years ago, we had kind of come into our own and we hit our stride and we were having, you know, we had had poopery and squatty potty and purple and fiber fix. We'd had several kind of home run hits right in a row. And, and we were, we were still a small team and we were just buried in demand for our services. And so we were constantly debating, you know, which projects do we do? Which ones do we turn down? And we were wasting enormous amounts of time just trying to figure out what to work on and what not to work on. And it was at that time that I read a book called Essentialism. It's actually a fantastic book and focuses in on, you know, how to say no to, you know, to good stuff so that you can say yes to great stuff. And I don't know if it was the advice of the book or if it was just the way that I interpreted it, but the application that came out of that ended up being a really, really poor long-term strategy for us. Cause essentially what I did was I said, we are only going to take the campaigns that have the highest probability of success. And we identified that by, by essentially creating a list of criteria that we had observed, had observed in our past clients and said, we only want clients who check all these boxes and that worked fine. But the problem was, it eliminated so many opportunities for our team to, to grow and to test and to try out of the box things and to try, you know, even high risk, low probability of success type campaigns. And so I feel like one full year of our development, we kind of stunted our growth a little bit. And it, it took a year for us to recognize that that had happened, you know, before we pivoted and started to embrace uh, some of the less than ideal type projects and campaigns so that we could really test ourselves and really stretch ourselves, And and so I would say that I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that essentialism gave bad advice, but the way I interpreted it ended up being bad advice for us. That's brilliant advice. And I actually had the exact same thing happen. So our CEO, Chad, spoke at an event with Greg and it's a great book and it's a great message. And I think it's really well done. And I listened to him speak at this at this event. And I ended up meeting, I didn't know that Chad, who was the my co-founder, we basically talked about that exact topic when we were building mission about this idea that like if you are so laser focused on something, you lose the ability to have serendipity. And so many of the things, if you look at so many businesses that were built or so many scientific experiments that the thing that, you know, penicillin or whatever it is, the, the finding was actually the, the thing that they weren't trying to find. To remain so vigilant and focused on one thing that you lose, you lose that is to sacrifice the gift at times. And there's some people who need to have that amount of focus put on them. And there's other folks that are pretty focused already that probably don't realize how focused they are and need to allow some serendipity into their lives. That's right. That's so funny. We had the exact same insight. That's really interesting. Um, but shout out to Greg. It's a good book. Um, I, I agree. I, I, I don't want it to come across as, as a, a critique of the book. That, that's why I say it's probably more in the way that I interpreted it. 
but it ended up being the wrong interpretation for us. It's a really good insight. And I think that marketers are faced with this every day, right? Of, hey, this is what's working. So let's put 100% of our budget into what's working. And especially when you look at things like paid ads, where there's no room for exponential upside if you're constantly just doing one type of thing. And I think that that is one of the big lessons from a lot of the great marketers. When Beth Comstock was talking about how, I believe it was between 20 and 30% of the budget that she set aside was for experiments. And because you need to have high growth experiments that you run as a marketer. Yeah, we had we had one client who had built their whole entire ad strategy around Facebook. And last year when Facebook made some sweeping changes to their platform, it made life really, really hard overnight for that client because their their whole ad strategy was built there. And then all of a sudden, all the ads and everything got more expensive overnight. Yeah, having there's a great saying about having all your eggs in one basket that I don't know off the top of my head, but uh, TLDR, it's not a great not a great strategy. <laughs> hey, that's it. That's all we got for today. Anything, anything else? Anything to uh, to plug that you're working on? The the one project that we've been working on the past few months is what we're calling Harmon Brothers University, and that's where it, we've simply been turning down about a hundred leads per month for the last several years, and and it kind of broke our heart to not be able to help all of those companies, and and so we decided to build a curriculum and to teach people to do what we do. And so a few months ago, we, we launched the beginning of, of what will be Harmon Brothers University. And so if anyone is you know, interested in, in learning the ins and outs of how we do what we do, um, HarmonBrothersUniversity.com is a great, a great place to, to learn how we do it. I love it. And you can find Benton on the Twitters at Benton Crane. And we'll, uh, we'll link up all that stuff in the show notes. Thanks so much for, for hanging out today. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a big pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. World-class B2B marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click on the link in our show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. 
Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.